Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, historian Benjamin Griffin on Ronald Reagan, Tom Clancy, and storytelling. Reagan very much saw himself as a fabulist, you know, kind of like a, a modern day Aesop, where he was putting some core truth about either himself, about how he saw the world, about a solid policy, wrapped around this story that he knew would be repeated. Reagan had a habit of when he saw a story or a joke he liked, he put out an X card, slip in the box, and pull it out whenever he wanted to. Movies that weren't necessarily military in nature still captured some of this uh, kind of Reagan optimism about not just the military, but American society. So the John Hughes movies, uh, Back to the Future, Reagan's worldview is really permeating Hollywood and fiction. Uh, and again, I think Clancy is a, a great example of that. Ben, thank you for joining me on Chatter. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's great to be here. We have a lot to talk about because you've jumped into an area in your research and writing that is in the sweet spot for David and for many of our listeners, because it really does combine some no kidding, hardcore national security strategy and policy issues with straight up pop culture and going in both directions. So I, I do want to dig into a lot of aspects of that. But let's let's start early on, which is your self-described early introduction to the works of Tom Clancy. How did you come to get to start reading the the author that ended up forming a big part of your research? Yeah, so I was finishing up the sixth grade and had gotten tired of kind of reading the sort of, you know, not elementary school, but sort of middle school novels and uh, my dad handed me a copy of The Hunt for Red October, and Ooh. I started plowing through it. Uh, then quickly went the Red Storm Rising, and by the time I was, you know, about halfway through the semester, I plowed through all the Clancy books. And so, what I love you'll say is I started research on this project when I was twelve, uh, and that is <laughs> thanks to my dad just handing me a book about submarines. That's really great foresight, right? Doing doing research for your dissertation and a book when you're twelve years old shows that you have a life plan. Or it goes the other way, right? You read it and you were just captivated by it enough that it helped direct where you went. Um, did it actually do that? I mean, do you consciously think that being exposed to that and being so excited about that did draw you uh, perhaps even more into issues of military affairs, but also big political issues? I think so. Uh, so my dad was a Coast Guard officer. Uh, he flew search and rescue for him for you know twenty odd years, and so I'd always been interested in the military, yeah. uh, interested in that kind of stuff. But then, you know, reading the Clancy novels again as a you know, preteen, and then continuing into my teen years, it just sort of helped me contextualize the the world I was around, and made me very interested in, in the geopolitics, the military affairs, uh, and just regular politics as well. And so I became a, a fairly nerdy teenager, perhaps in part because of Clancy. Well, I mean, I was, I was nerdy before that as well, in all fairness. You do not have to make an excuse for being a nerdy teenager because my parallel to that story, I came to Tom Clancy from uh, a different stepping stone, one that you'll be familiar with. So at some point, years before your experience, because you're a young strapping man and, and I'm old, but probably 10 plus years before you had that exposure, I vividly recall my father coming home from the public library and bringing with him, I believe it was a paperback, and I can still see the cover, and it was called The Third World War, 
I think August 1985 was the the subtitle. And by Sir, and I remember Sir was on the cover, and that struck me because I didn't have that many books with Sir uh, as the author. Sir John Hackett, if I recall the full name. So Hackett something. Yeah, Gerald Sir John Hackett. Okay, so I got that part right. And it's been a few years, so if I get the details wrong. But I remember reading it as a, it must have been a teenager or a preteen. I was, I was I'm guessing preteen, but somewhere in there. And I was interested enough in the world that I thought, well, now that's interesting. I didn't know we had a third world war. And I started reading it and it, it didn't read like fiction. It was more almost like a, a, a documentary in print than a, a novel with characters and drama and sex and violence. It was, it was kind of like a history, a future history. And I recall few of the details, but I do remember that I think it's Birmingham or Manchester in the UK, but definitely Minsk in what was then the Soviet Union get nuked. I thought, holy crap, you know, that this is a horrific, but, but the rest of it, it's, it's just a very straightforward, you know, strategy tactics. It's playing out of world war three in Europe. I, I read that probably digested half of it at the age, but I read it and was interested enough that there was this other book out there that the library had paired with it called red storm rising by Tom Clancy. And so that was my first exposure to Clancy. Hunt for Red October, I, I'm not sure I'd even heard of, but I, I saw Red Storm Rising and then went back to Hunt for Red October. It's amazing how everybody or nearly everybody who grew up in a certain period who has any interest in international or political affairs, Clancy is part of their character, part of their DNA. Did you find that in when you decided to actually start researching and writing more about it, that you found a receptive audience because you could assume that most people knew what you were talking about when it came to these novels? Absolutely. It made it a, a much easier kind of sales pitch, a much easier end uh, because they had already read these novels. They had, you know, in some way shaped a, a lot of the either outlooks or just something they had to respond to in their field already. And so it, it was a conversation that a lot of the you know, people I interviewed in the Reagan administration were very happy to talk about. Uh, but then when I talked to just Anyone else in you know, my department here at West Point about the project or, you know, people more broadly, they all tend to be very interested because they know these books, they know these stories. And there's something with just want to know why that story that you have been reading and thinking about for decades now uh, really matters. And that it isn't just some kind of, you know, throwaway fiction. It's not a beach read. It's something that can actually have an impact on the real world. Absolutely. And, and your specialty has been to link that to you know, one, one of the most historic presidencies of the 20th century, the presidency of Ronald Reagan and doing a dissertation on the topic and then turning it into the new book, Reagan's War Stories, a, a Cold War Presidency. You've actually done the thing that I remember back in grad school, we were working on our dissertations and obviously some of them are more interesting than others, even to the people writing them, but you hit the Holy Grail, right? You found a way to write about a compelling presidency while you're basically writing about all these great books and movies that intersect with it. And the only parallel I could come up with um, at the moment when I realized that you hit that holy grail was what this, I think it was a professor. I don't think it was his dissertation. But when I was uh, doing my dissertation, which involved alliances, and I was focusing in particular on Middle Eastern alliances, I found a book that a professor had written on what he called sub-regional security cooperation in the third world. So alliances or near alliances and his case studies 
There were a few that were the normal types, like the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, and the Gulf Cooperation Council, which I also worked on. But man, in terms of research, he nailed it because he also included the Organization of East Caribbean States. So you get to go to the Caribbean to do research. (laughs) And the South Pacific Forum, right? So you get to go to the Pacific paradises to do research. I thought, man, he hit it. You've hit it in a different way. The book's you grew up on, the movies you grew up on, you incorporated them into your research. Do you do you feel guilty at all for all the people who had to do topics that were more <laughs> number crunching and more statistical that they didn't have the pleasure that you did? I, I absolutely do. And I have to continually apologize to, to my peers, both at UT, but then also, you know, the people I've worked with here at West Point and then kind of in the broader field that <laughs> I was lucky enough to be able to basically take everything that I liked growing up and, and find a way to shoehorn it into this project, right? So the Clancy novels are there. I'm a huge Chicago Cubs fan. And so I got to bring in Reagan's past as a Cubs broadcaster and make it an important part of the story. I like Dungeons and Dragons. That's in there. Um, I like Star Trek and science fiction. Um, and, and so all this stuff that I just like I was able to work in and made it a a joy to research this project because every time I'm able to touch it back to some point in my life uh, and something that I really enjoyed and revisit it with different eyes. Um, And that was just a just a joyful experience. Did the historians who served on your dissertation committee and others who advised you, did they get that? Did did they understand that, that? No, this is no kidding. Serious history. Or were they kind of just nodding and winking like, yeah, we, we know you're kind of writing about this stuff and making it into history. How did they feel about this? Because it's not the normal project. So I was very lucky to have just immediate and great support from everyone on my committee. So Jeremy Surrey uh, was my committee chair. Uh, Mark Lawrence, who's now the uh, director of the LBJ Library, was on it. Uh, Will Inboden, uh, who's in charge of the Clement Center. Uh, James Graham Wilson was at state at the time working um, in their history department. And then H.W. Brands, uh, you know, who teaches UT, has a great Reagan buyer himself. Uh, but at every turn, they were very encouraging. Uh, I think I had more doubts about it being real history and real scholarship than they did. Uh, and so I appreciate them kind of talking at the ledge sometimes. But no, I, I couldn't have asked for a, a better committee or a better environment than, than UT Austin that really helped me out with that. And you really hit the jackpot there, too, with that committee in terms of people who have looked at Reagan from different angles in, in great depth, including, you know, Will with his uh, forthcoming book, uh, The Peacemaker, about, about Reagan. Um, let's talk a little bit about Reagan. Uh, you, you've looked at many, many sources to try to get a picture of how different elements of entertainment informed Reagan, guided Reagan, uh, provided Reagan with opportunities for narratives, and then also how his use of those influenced policy and his communications. So let's go back to the beginning. What do we know about Ronald Reagan as a reader and a consumer of entertainment during his formative years, that is his childhood and then going up to and through college? Yeah, so I think one of the things that surprises people a lot when I bring this up is that Reagan was a voracious and a lifelong reader. We have this image of the movie star president, and he is obviously kind of inextricably tied to Hollywood. Uh, But when he was growing up, uh, his family was bouncing around Illinois as his dad was a traveling salesman. uh, And so he had kind of difficulty establishing roots. And so he would describe the libraries in these towns he went to as basically like a paradise, a place that he'd go to escape. Uh, a place that he really felt comfortable. Uh, and so he also has a relatively difficult family life. 
um, you know, his mother, uh, he views as a saint. Uh, he always speaks glowingly about Mel. Uh, but his father, Jack, he kind of uh, had a tough relationship there. His father was an alcoholic, uh, had difficulty keeping a job at times. Uh, Reagan describes a very formative moment for him uh, as finding his father passed out in the snow and having to drag him in and put him into bed. Um, and so that kind of key paternal, you know, key father-son relationship is not there for him. And he's looking for kind of books to sort of establish who the man he should be is. And he has this kind of act of almost self-creation, uh, as I talk about it in the chapters. And so two of the books or two of the authors in particular who play a major role in this are Harold Bell Wright, uh, who is largely forgotten now, I think, uh, but he was one of the great bestsellers of the early 20th century, first American author to sell over a million copies. Uh, and he was a pastor, uh, kind of traveled around the Midwest, ends up settling down in Pittsburgh, Kansas, not Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Kansas, um, and ends up writing some of these books tied to his biography or kind of autobiographical sermons that he'd been given. Um, and his biggest one is that printer of Udell's. Um, which Reagan describes as the book that makes him a practical Christian. His mother gave him a copy of it probably was around 10 or 11 years old. Uh, and Reagan can't help but see himself in the pages of this book. Can you give us just the, the brief summary of the plot and the character of that book, just um, the Cliff's Notes version, just so we understand why it was formative for him? Absolutely. Uh, so the book is about uh, a young man who leaves his home probably around the age of 10 because his mother dies of tuberculosis and he hates his father. So he leaves, becomes kind of a hobo riding the rails for a while, uh, finds out his father is dead, um, still doesn't really care about that, but decides he can go back to civilization. Walks into this town, uh, which is a very Christian town, has a large church-going community, uh, but finds no welcome there except from a guy who doesn't go to church. Uh but who practices this practical Christianity of kind of living the words of the Bible uh, as opposed to saying them on Sundays. Uh, so the main character gets really involved in the town with the youth groups, but still can't find acceptance, uh, falls in love with the daughter of the kind of leading merchant in the town uh, who refuses to recognize the relationship, causing the daughter to run away to a brothel. Uh, he then saves her from the brothel uh, and rather than face the shame, the finally accepts the relationship in the wedding. The book ends with, the new couple going off to D.C. haven't been elected to Congress. There's so many themes there that, you know, we don't realize because not everybody can read everything. But here is a best-selling novel going back over 100 years that's influenced so many writers because they grew up on it. And all those themes come back in the, the, the TV, the movies, the books that, that follow that we don't understand that maybe this was one of the archetypes for it at least in American pop literature. Yeah, absolutely. It's got a lot of almost like a, it's a wonderful life aspect to it in some ways uh, with the, what would it be like if I wasn't here type of thing. And yeah, so Reagan reads this and he sees himself in the kid with the, the abused mother and the absent or abusing father and, and kind of sees who he wants to be. And this is where, and then he rejects his father's Catholicism, adopts his mother's more kind of generic form of Christianity and this then filters throughout his speeches really through the rest of his life about, you know, how he views being a Christian, right? And so after he is nearly killed uh, by, you know, an assassin's bullet coming out of the speech in 81, uh, he feels like he was spared for a purpose, and that was to get rid of nuclear weapons. Um, but with this, too, he's talking about then the evil of the kind of nuclear zone movement and the idea that it's all above us, it doesn't matter to us. And so in his famous speech to the National Association of Evangelicals, the Evil Empire speech, he references C.S. Lewis uh, and about how 
you know, evil is not done in these sordid dens of crime. It's done in offices by men with white collars and, you know, polished nails who say that they're not involved with it or doesn't affect them. Um, and so, again, it speaks to his idea that to really, you know, be faithful, to be Christian, you have to go out and do good things. Uh, and so that's what he means when he says the book made him a practical Christian, is he wants to be more like the main character of the book rather than the the townspeople. That is so interesting because we know, among other things, because he talked about it later on, that High Noon was, was a favorite of his. Um, and there's a similar theme there, right? About the hypocrisy of, of people at some level, in this case, having to do with religion, in that case, having to do with, you know, whether they want you to, you know, stand up to evil or just go along with it. But this idea of somebody needs to see through that and see what good is, regardless of what people say good is, but, but do the good rather than just going along and pretending, right? So it's not about the surface good. It's about whether that archetypical hero actually is at his core. And it almost always is a his in the books and movies Reagan's got, whether he is just truly a good person who has absolute clarity of moral vision. Yeah, I think High Noon is probably one of the definitive pieces of fiction that kind of defines what Reagan's viewpoint was. And you mentioned the archetype. And so Reagan seeks out familiar stories throughout his life. Um, and those stories almost invariably star, you know, a a strong white male with clear sense of a moral code who goes in, does the right things for the right reasons, and then is happy to leave without getting any credits or reward. Um, and so that's what he sees in, in Marshall Kane in High Noon, right, where the marshal has already decided he's moving on with his uh, pacifist wife to open up a shop. Uh, but he learns that uh, a gang he put away has just gotten out and is coming back to town. And the villagers say, just move on. Don't, don't stay. Don't fight. It'll be better for us if you're not here. Uh, and he refuses. He stands up and fights uh, with the help of the town drunk, uh, and who's vaguely useful in this whole conflict, uh, but then ultimately beats the gang because his pacifist wife puts aside those views to help her to help him uh, take out the gang leader. And then you have the dramatic scene at the end where the townspeople come out and they're all super grateful and happy he's done this now. Right. And he looks at them with disgust, drops his martial star in the dirt, and rides off with his wife. Uh, and so Reagan would reference this movie all the time. He would talk about how he wanted the high noon policy or Marshall Kane policy. And that meant just do the right thing for the right reasons. And who cares what anyone else says? Uh, and this creates some serious problems for him right. uh, because of how people take that and interpret it. But there's another kind of subtext to this um, because it's written by uh, someone who's about to be blacklisted by Hollywood. Uh, one of the people who has refused to testify before HUAC, mm. uh, who's about to flee the country, believing it's going to be the last movie that he gets to work on. Let's spell out. Huac there, just in case some people aren't uh, into that. But this is the Un-American Activities Investigation, right? Yes. Yeah. So the House uh, Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, and so he's, the screenwriters refused to testify and writes this movie about the persecution that he and his fellow travelers are experiencing in Hollywood, where the writer views himself as the Marshall Kane character uh, who is being abused for things he shouldn't be abused for. And so at best in this telling, Reagan would be a villager. Uh, but in reality, he's probably part of the bad guy gang because Reagan's a friendly witness before the HUAC. Uh, he is the leader of the Screen Actors Guild at this time. Uh, and so very much involved in kind of the business side of Hollywood and these determinations. So he's, yeah, it could be seen he's one of the townspeople more than the hero in the tale. And we'll probably get to later, but also there's a difference in that ending, right? Because Reagan 
was, if nothing else, always the optimist and didn't seem the type to throw down his badge and say, screw you all, I'm out of here. Um, but more the type to say, you know, well, you know, we've done it uh, and, and look towards a, a brighter future. Um, but you mentioned, you know, you mentioned the the book by Wright uh, uh, Udell's and you, you we talked about High Noon, but there was another character who was apparently very important for Ronald Reagan early on. And it's more in the, the science fiction genre. Uh, and this is Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter. Talk about how we know that he was so interested in the Edgar Rice Burroughs books. And I, I think it was John Carter more than Tarzan um, and, and how that informed him. Yeah. And so you go back to this archetype uh, of what the, the character that Reagan loves is. And I think this is where Reagan first encounters it and really sticks and where Reagan takes this character and decides that that's the person that he wants to be. Uh, and so we know that he likes John Carter because he writes about John Carter pretty much all his life. Uh, most prominently, you have this period where he's not on the governor of California and after he tries to run in 76. Uh, but before he runs in 1980, he's corresponding with the director of the library in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, and what this librarian has done is written to prominent Americans, asking them, you know, what their favorite books are. And so Reagan writes back saying he really wishes that he could say that his favorites, his classics were these these high works of literature, these great works of fiction um, and testaments to human creativity. But right. in reality, um, he's a sucker for hero worship. Uh, and he wishes that uh, John Carter of Mars was better known and better appreciated uh, in that you know, that's where he spent his boyhood was on the, the dusty sands of Barsoom or on Mars. Uh, and a side note to that, you know, Jimmy Carter's mother wrote back to the librarian as well, um, saying what kind of books, what Jimmy Carter's favorite book was as a 10-year-old, alleging was War and Peace, uh, which I find kind of doubtful. I love Tolstoy. It's a great book. As a 10-year-old, though? Oof, that's rough. Uh, so it's interesting, the the Mars thing, because you're, you're going back now to a time when Mars, there were a whole lot of misconceptions about Mars, including there must be a civilization there of some sort. And these novels by Edgar Rice Burroughs are essentially Westerns that take place on Mars, right? It's the same type of character. The hero goes in, finds a bad situation through a clear moral code and integrity, finds a way to make things better sometimes gets a reward, but sometimes the the improvement is its own reward. So there is definitely a theme between that and some of the other things that Reagan was exposed to, right? Absolutely. It's a clear narrative pattern. Uh, and I think certainly an influence on many of the Western novels that would follow uh, this one, because Burroughs is writing these again in the 1910s, uh, first serialized in magazines before they're collected and published. Um, but yeah, John Carter is a former Confederate cavalryman who has gone west to search for gold in Arizona, and he just finds a rich vein when he is chased away by the Apache. Uh, so again, this could be any Western that you read just by itself that fits all those narrative tropes right there. Uh, the twist comes when he is hiding from the Apache and is transported magically to Mars. Uh, but from there, it's still largely plot-wise a Western. Uh, just with some sci-fi elements added in there, right? You have alien species uh, with the, the Tarkas who are, you know, stand-ins for Native Americans. You have the various colors of Martians who are just different civilizations, different times, like Western towns almost. And what Carter finds is that because Earth has a higher gravity than Mars, he is now a superhuman, basically. He can run faster, jump higher, lift more, uh, punch harder than anyone that lives on the planet of Mars. Uh, but he also was able to intuitively grasp their enhanced uh, and advanced technology. 
And so he pairs his superhuman physical abilities, his knowledge technology, but also a strong moral code based on ideas of freedom to transform the planets. Uh, and so at the end of the first book, he has just married the planet's most beautiful woman uh, and then has saved the planet too from its collapsing oxygen generators before being transported back to Earth. And the next two books bring him back to Mars where he has further adventures with his son. Uh, but again, all of these are very much um, similar to anything you'd read in a Western. But I think what was key to Reagan about these is in addition to the archetype of this John Carter character, you all had this portrayal of the idea that, you know, this freedom plus this high technology equal unlimited progress. And that's something that uh, just comes through repeatedly. Uh, I mean, just over and over again, when right. he's talking to people and his speeches and in his policy as well, Reagan puts a lot of faith in the ability of Americans to both develop, uh, use high technology, and then its ability for that technology in our hands to transform the world for the better. A hero with the right weapons is hard to beat. And you're right, that does inform so much of Reagan's policy, but not just policy, the faith behind the policy that, well, of course, this is right, almost like an unwillingness or an inability to recognize that that could not be the right equation. It, yeah, the impossible. For, for a hero so properly armed to lose. And part of this is Reagan loves happy stories. Uh, anything that Reagan is going to read and love, it's got to end well. Uh, the only kind of weird exception to that uh, is he also enjoys like narratives of military sacrifice. You know, so some of the stories where, you know, a, a soldier dies at the end uh, is still viewed by Reagan as a happy story because the reward that follows is society is saved or freedom is preserved. And it's a, a no, it's a good death. That's a good point. The, the hero may die, but the hero is reaches the ultimate reward, right? Um, but that's interesting because you raised the, the stories that he told. And Reagan could tell a story about John Carter or or tell a story about some of these other novels he read as, as a kid. Um, but he could also tell these little vignettes, and he often did in his speeches. And some of them were um, were actually quite accurate, right? When he points to somebody in the balcony at the State of the Union address and tells the story of what happened. And some of them, upon pretty quick investigation, people found there's nothing here. Like, we don't know why he's telling this story because it, it can't be true the way he described it. You make the point that that's, yes, that's that's an issue for, you know, big T truth, but in terms of the the narrative that he was trying to communicate, the story was representative. The story was a way to make concrete, to make familiar, to make tactile for people the concept that he was trying to get across. Yeah, Reagan very much saw himself as a fabulist, you know, kind of like a, a modern day Aesop, where he was putting some core truth about either himself, about how he saw the world, about a solid policy, wrapped around this story that he knew would be repeated. Uh, and shared widely. And my favorite example of this comes when he's addressing the Medal of Honor Association. He, he's getting one of their highest awards for, I think it's the Freedom Award. And there's no shortage, I should say, there's no shortage of great stories about Medal of Honor recipients that are truthful, that that really express the sacrifice, the courage, all of the things that you're trying to honor with that hundreds, thousands of stories that one could tell that are literally taken from a book of facts. So he he had that option, but I think I see where you're going with this. Yeah, so he's in a room full of recipients of our nation's highest honor, any of whom stories he could have taken and said, and that person is right there. Like you said, he appoints them like they're on the balcony of the State of the Union. Uh, 
but he wants to make a point about the difference between the Soviet Union and the United States. And so he tells a story about how uh, he was sitting in California in the 60s and reads a newspaper article about someone who was just awarded the hero of the Soviet Union, their highest award. And he was confused because it's uh, a translator who has just returned from Havana. And there's nothing wrong with being a teacher and a translator, but it's not usually what you reward someone for with you know, the nation's highest decoration. And he asked someone to dig into it. Uh, and it turns out that this individual is Ramon, Ramon Mercader, who is the assassin of Trotsky. And so Reagan's point is the Soviets give their highest medal to political assassins. He then tells a story about a citation for the Medal of Honor he read while he was serving in World War II. Uh, and there is a B-17 that is flying back across the English Channel, having successfully bombed somewhere in Germany. Uh, but it's too damaged. It is going to crash. And so the pilot reluctantly gives the order for everyone to bail out over the channel. Uh, so his co-pilot is at the door about ready to jump. He's behind them. And they both hear a voice from the belly gunner uh, crying out uh, because he's too wounded to be able to escape. Uh, and he looks up you know, and asks the pilot not to let him die alone. Uh, and the pilot looks back and says, all right, son, we'll ride down together. And Reagan pauses there. Medal of Honor. Posthumous. You know, we give, the Soviets give their highest award to a political assassin, and we give ours to uh, a man who wanted to bring comfort to a dying boy. It's a powerful message. Issue is, is that B-17 never existed. Um, there, there is no Medal of Honor citation uh, for uh, that, that meets that criteria of a B-17 that's crashing uh, into the channel where the pilot just decides, okay, we're going to sit here and I'm going to make sure you feel all right. We're going to do this together. There are plenty uh, where you have cases of a pilot giving a parachute to wounded comrades. So they can jump out and the pilot can try and land the plane. You can have cases where pilots are trying to land um, when they know the people in the crew are, are too hurt behind them to be able to get out. Uh, none of those ones are in England. Um, and so having gone through every citation from World War II, it just it doesn't exist. Uh, no one really knows the origin of that story. Uh, Reagan had a habit of when he saw a story or a joke he liked, he put on an X card, slip in a box and pull it out whenever he wanted to. Uh, best I can tell, he found it somewhere in the late 40s, early 50s. The first usage of it that I've seen was in a 54 address to the William Woods College, uh, all women's school. Uh, where he's kind of describing the type of men these women should try to raise, basically. Like, this is what you want your boys to become. Um, but then that, that same story carries through. Again, he's given a speech in the early 80s uh, and kind of the same ideas he's talking about throughout his presidency. That's such a great story for showing, you know, first of all, his delivery of those stories was masterful. He he could, with the timing, with the emotion, the varying of his his voice, he, he was very good when it came to telling those stories, much better than giving detailed policy addresses in, in my view. And yet the core truth of it, it's unclear whether he cared whether it was true, right? Whether it was important to him that it actually was history that happened the way he described it, or whether it it made the point in a way that he felt needed to be made. I'm not clear if you could ask him, you know, if he knew it was true and if he cared if it was true, if you'd get different answers there. So there are a number of cases where people come back to him with some of these stories. He's telling, them, hey, you know, this isn't accurate, right? And he doesn't particularly care. Um, and so I think he cares less about, or I say, if, I think from Reagan's point, the, the facts matter less than the truth is how he would probably try to describe that. Uh, is saying that, yes, the, the exact situation may not be correct, but the message is the truth. And that's what's more important. And that was overriding for him uh, when he was viewing these things. There's something else that 
influenced Reagan that I had been less less familiar with, um, because it's 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 not these these fictional stories as such. But Whitaker Chambers, uh, amazing historical figure, and uh, in case some of us aren't aren't as familiar with him as others, I hope you can describe the the Whitaker Chambers story briefly. But then talk about his book and how it spoke to Reagan in a different way. And what I'm leading up to is I know that it it had an influence or certainly was expressed well in Reagan's very famous speech, A Time for Choosing. And I'd like you to to weave that narrative for us of, of how that how intellectually the the ideas in that book and the experience that Whitaker Chambers describes ends up actually appealing to Reagan in a way that might not be intuitive. Yeah, so this is the the one work of nonfiction that I really give extensive treatment to in the book. Um, but it also reads like a work of fiction because Whitaker Chambers was a Soviet spy. Uh, he gets recruited in college, initially starts kind of working with uh, sort of the public facing newspaper they're producing before he's kind of pulled back, put off the grid, and then working directly with the NKVD to recruit uh, sorry, Soviet Army intelligence to recruit spies um, to fry information back to uh, to Moscow. And so the most prominent ones that were in his network were Alger Hiss, who was going to rise to be a close advisor to Dean Acheson, Secretary of State, who was also on several FDR's big conference trips. Uh, and then Harry Dexter White, who is going to be the lead economist negotiating for the U.S. at Bretton Woods. Uh, and so he recruits these individuals. Uh, but over the course of the 1930s, really kind of at the time of the Great Terror and the show trials in Moscow, he breaks with communism. Uh, part of this is because his handler, uh, is making inferences that uh, Chambers has the wrong sort of communist views, that he's not really a Stalinist, he's maybe more of a Trotskyist. Uh, Chambers believes that one of his close friends has been assassinated already. Uh, but then also in Chambers' telling, uh, it's because the you know, NKVD doesn't want him and his wife to have their child. Uh, they choose to anyway, and he's holding his baby daughter, uh, looking at her ear, and then realizes the perfection of the ear and the design that must be involved in that. Uh, and so as he frames it, you know, his break with communism comes not at the level of conscious thought, but rather that of unconscious life. Uh, and so he finishes with the Communist Party. He goes on to write for Time Life throughout World War II uh, and is then brought before uh, HUAC as well because his replacement as a career outs him. And that's where he then outs Alger Hiss. Uh, that leads to the very dramatic um, hearings with both him and Hiss in the room as Hiss is denying his involvement. Chambers produces documents that were stolen out of a pumpkin patch, or documents that were stolen in a photograph that he had stored in a pumpkin patch, uh, leading to Hiss's prosecution on charge of perjury. Uh, and then years later, it's revealed that Hiss was, in fact, an agent, codenamed Ailes, mm -hmm. had gotten an award from the Soviets at the Yalta Conference. Uh, and so Chambers is vindicated there. Mm -hmm. But Reagan reads this very dramatic story uh, at a time when he is experiencing a lot of things with communists in Hollywood. Uh, he has gotten involved in a number of advocacy groups, and he's seen communists kind of infiltrate those and use questionable tactics to try and exercise control over the groups. And Reagan is appalled when he sees things like people declaring the Soviet constitution is more democratic than the American one, that they would fight for the Soviets, that uh, clearly it was America's fault the Korean War started. Uh, but he recognizes you know, his own experiences in those of Chambers is and then decides that the way to break someone from communism is through religion, kind of in a broad sense, not again, a particular denomination, but more being a practical Christian, a practical Jew, practical Muslim, practical whatever. As long as you have faith, that is a weapon against communism in this war uh, in Reagan's mind. 
And so that becomes a huge theme for him running through. And he will quote Chambers at length uh, in policy meetings uh, as talking to his advisors and all of them, like, or not all of them, but many of them are able to quote it right back to him, speaking to just the power that this novel, or not novel, but this book has uh, on their kind of political formation and their worldview. And you also tie this into one of the the few occasions when you look at Reagan's history of where he actually appears, I don't want to say bitter, maybe that's the wrong word, but where he actually takes really personally something that somebody says against him instead of shaking it off and saying, you know, well, carry on. Um, and this was when the AFL-CIO and others were very resistant when when Reagan started putting out a message that was not strictly in line with what they said, even though he had been uh, obviously a strong union man, even though he had supported the AFL-CIO in the past, um, the union really turned against him. And it seems like he took it quite personally, Was felt betrayed by it, and actually felt like it mirrored the experience that Whitaker Chambers described. Yeah, absolutely. One of Reagan's first kind of political activities that I, that I came across was him recording a radio ad for um, Hubert Humphrey uh, in his first Senate campaign in Minnesota. Uh, you know, and that was at the behest of an AFL-CIO labor union. Uh, but then as he's doing these GE talks, he's putting this book of bad actors, basically of people who should not be allowed to talk. Uh, groups are demanding, in fact, that if you let him speak to your workers, then you have to let the leader of the local Communist Party come in afterwards. Uh, and so he, he's taken that experience. He's comparing it to what he sees in Chambers' book. He's comparing it to what he sees in Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon. Uh, but then also uh, what he saw with resistance to anti-communist messages in SAG and some of the other kind of Hollywood advocacy groups and thinks that you know they are not just bad in the sense that the ideology stinks, but that they are actively working to suppress and destroy freedom. Um, and that there can therefore be no greater evil than than communism and that he's going to do what he can to fight it. So a lot of what we've discussed so far, Ben, really is about forming Reagan's worldview or confirming his worldview or challenging his worldview, but, but allowing him in a sense to come into office as president with, with a way of looking at the world, uh, with a, a frame of mind that is relatively consistent in, in many ways. And then we enter Tom Clancy. So we have the case of a, a unique intersection, and I, I think it is unique, a unique intersection in the presidency of a, an author who is somewhat inspired by a president, at least informed by his feelings towards a president, writes a book. The president effectively promotes the book from a virtual unknown and becoming a best-selling author, which, which then helps inform policy. Both that book and successive books does inform policy and perhaps more importantly, the selling and marketing of the policies. Um, which then it, it's like this this reinforcement loop that just keeps going almost as an infinity mirror. And I'd like you to talk through kind of how that how that started. Like how did Clancy, you know, how did his views of the policies of the time inform his very quickly written Hunt for Red October? And then how did Reagan become aware of that and almost instantly use that in his public speeches? So Clancy had always been pro-military and had wanted to, in fact, join the military coming out of college. Uh, but he is 
was blind as a bat uh, and so was not going to be able to get past any of the physical screenings. And so he kind of settles down for a military adjacent life, selling insurance uh, at this you know small Maryland town, kind of halfway between Annapolis and Washington, D.C. Uh, but he stays involved in the community. He's subscribing to the Naval Institute's proceedings uh, and just kind of trying to stay abreast of that, doing research in Jane's, which had all the guides for ships and weapons uh, and everything that were hugely popular uh, at the time. And he decides that you know, he wants to write fiction. He wants to write a novel. Uh, and he actually has like four or five ideas he's writing simultaneously. It's really impressive that he you know, puts out the volume that he does. Uh, so it's just remarkable, actually. Uh, comes up with this idea based off of a Soviet destroyer that tried to defect in the Baltic Sea. Uh, you had the political officer there trying to steal the ship um, and steer it to safer harbor. Uh, it's disabled by Soviet airplanes. Uh, the crew is arrested. The uh, political officer, I believe, is executed uh, coming out of that. To point out, that that actually happened, right? Late 70s? Yes. Yeah, uh, the Zorohetsky. Yeah. Uh, it's like 1977, 78. Um, so Clancy sees that and is like, that's really cool. What if it was on a submarine? Uh, because that would then be very difficult to track down. And so that's the the origin story for the hunt for an October. Uh, Clancy writes this novel then about a Soviet sub-captain who steals the most advanced Soviet submarine and tries to take it to the U.S. Uh, but then in a really amateurish way, he tries to sell the book. Uh, and so again, most times if you have a work of fiction, you're going to get a literary agent. They're going to sell it for you to, to various publishing houses. Uh, instead, Clancy's like, well, I got this novel. Um, and hey, Naval Institute has published two of my letters to the editor. So that means they like me a lot. Uh, I'm going to go over there and sell them my book. And he's very fortunate because they have just decided, in fact, that, yeah, we want to do fiction now. Uh, and it's got to be wet, tied to, you know, the ocean or the Navy in some way, and that fit the bill. And so that will be their first original work of fiction. Uh, it comes out and it's largely doing pretty well in the D.C., New York kind of area. It's successful, not like bestseller level, but Again, it's definitely a win. Uh, it meets Clancy's goal of having a dust jacket with his name on the cover. Uh, but then Nancy Reynolds, who was Reagan's uh, director of electronic communications in Sacramento and has been with him for a very long time, picks up a copy and reads it and just recognizes that this is the type of story that Reagan loves. Because uh, Reagan had told her before, if you, know, you have a book, you never want for a friend. Uh, and so she understands the importance of novels to him, but also the type of novel that he likes. And so she reads it while flying to Argentina for something, comes back, gives it to Reagan for Christmas in 1984. Um, Reagan reads it uh, and loves it. And so he comes into staff meetings the next day. He's like, hey, look, I am so sorry. I'm tired, but I was up to three in the morning reading this book. Uh, and so the staff takes the hint, like, hey, the boss likes this book. Let's find the book. Uh, Ken Edelman has a great story about trying to find it. Uh, in a small DC bookstore and only able to locate it because it was filed as a technical novel and not a actual fictional work. Which in some ways it was, right? It had it had immense technical detail of relatively well written, I would say, better than some of the dialogue, but that's um, not as much of a criticism <laughs> as an acknowledgement Clancy himself might make. Yes. Uh, John Lehman said that you know his response to reading it was who the hell cleared this? Uh, and then Clancy admits that writing the text stuff was easy and the dialogue was hard. So he had that kind of repeatedly um, and that remains a hit on his writing throughout his career, I think. But and then Reagan praised it as you know, unputdownable and the perfect yarn to the press. And then it hits the bestseller list for the first time the week after Clancy visits Reagan in the White House uh, in March of 1985. This is fascinating on multiple levels. So on the one hand, 
it, it reinforces a strong public narrative that's out there about Ronald Reagan, which existed at the time too, but it also debunks one. So the one that it reinforces is that Reagan was often captured by, some people said it was you know pulp fiction, but he, he was more captured sometimes by fiction and the kinds of heroic stories that you've mentioned than he was by thick policy papers that you would expect a president you know, puts his head into. And so I think it, it helps support that part of it. But it debunks the wider myth about Reagan that I've experienced with speaking to audiences around the country, the myth being that Reagan, you know, certainly, you know, wasn't much of a, a reader, wasn't someone who engaged. He was the amiable dunce is the term that has often been uh, put to Reagan. And when, when you talk to all the advisors who worked with him in the White House, when you talked with his cabinet secretaries, the staff, you discover, no, if you put something in front of him and said, read this, he did what he often referred to as his homework. He felt like he had to do that reading, sometimes to the point that if they gave him a report and said, only read the executive summary, they'd find that he stayed up late because he, he felt like he had to read it. And certainly the story about the hunt for Red October and the fact that he you know, read a lot of it just upon picking it up and then stayed up late another night to do it, even though you can almost hear Nancy saying, Ronnie, <laughs> go to sleep. That that does peel back some of that impression of Reagan as somebody who did not engage with with verbal material. Yeah, Reagan would read highly technical things. It definitely wasn't his favorites. Um, there's a great story, Ken DeGraffenreid, who was working on the NSC as kind of their uh, special programs lead told me a story about how they'd given Reagan this super thick binder of very highly technical stuff. And usually they would mark it up, say, hey, you know, check this part out, check this part out, ignore this. And they hadn't done it in this case. And so Reagan went off to Camp David for the weekend, came back uh, and the binder came back down to see with a note like there, I read the whole damn thing. What was the point of this? And I mean, Reagan wasn't one who, who cursed very often. And so I think that spoke to his special kind of ire that uh, he'd been asked to, to read this without much of a clear purpose or intention. But I mean, anyone that you talked to that was close to Reagan would talk about how he would read widely uh, as far you know what the policy books of the day were, uh, obviously fiction, but that he had a keen intellect and was a driving force in his own administration. I think some of the early stories coming out of the administration where you had people that were disgruntled and leaving uh, were playing into the popular stereotypes of the able dunce. Right. Um, but it just didn't really reflect the reality. Now, Reagan did not like detail. I mean, he was much more of a broad strokes, big idea guy. Mm -hmm. uh, but if pressed, he could do it. Yeah. And he's certainly not the only president uh, to fit that description in terms of big picture vision and not micromanaging uh, in a mm -hmm. sense. So Hunt for Red October comes out. He reads it. He's, he's enthralled by it. And part of the reason that he seems to be and you can flesh this out, the, the skeleton that I'll try to draw. This comes at a time in the early 80s, I think 83. Uh, you're coming off of a period of, what, five, eight, ten years of a narrative in American pop culture when it comes to military and national security affairs of generally one of two things. One of them is the incompetent, stupid, rogue, or evil government. So this is things like all the president's men, the born identity, you know, that there's evil people running covert operations or bad people in government. And it's, you know, the, the job to uncover just how bad they are. Or alternatively, um, 
just how at least morally ambiguous, but sometimes just how bad service in the military is, whether it's Apocalypse Now or Deer Hunter, things like that. And it seems that Reagan was all too aware of this, that, that he noted some of these some of these movies he clearly didn't like and expressed it. So that when Hunt for Red October comes out, and then following on that, you start getting things uh, right around the same time period, like the second Rainbow installment, uh, Rainbow 2, and you get Rocky Four, and then soon after that, Top Gun, you have a real shift there. Um, you still are getting some of those movies, uh, themes that I described, but there there seems to be a time where some of the best-selling books and a lot of the best-performing movies are much more American government and especially American military is good. Talk through that a little bit. Yeah, this is definitely something that Reagan is very much aware of. I mean, with his background, how could he not be? You know, having been in Hollywood for so long, uh, even in the, in the 70s, he's kind of disgusted by the direction that movies are going. So when Patton comes out, he writes the director saying, hey, thank you so much for producing a pro-American movie, basically. Um, and so as he's entered the office, he wants to sort of change this narrative about the U.S. government, but also in particular about you know the American soldier, the American service member, uh, to reflect his view of their gallantness and their bravery. Um, and so he wants to set this tone. He does it initially uh, by awarding you know, the Medal of Honor to Master Benavidez for his service in Vietnam, uh, but then also using his address at the commencement at the United States Military Academy here at West Point, New York, uh, to sort of set the stage for this. Uh, and the drafts for the speech are really interesting because in some of the very late drafts of the speech, there's a passage in it that just excoriates Hollywood. Uh, it you know criticizes their reprehensible pandering uh, to un-American and unpatriotic sentiments. Wow. And in the margin are some of those films you just mentioned, the Apocalypse mm -hmm. Now, Deer Hunter, Coming Home, which are all exceptional films. They're, they're very well made, very great stories, but also all portray American service members as damaged, mm -hmm. um, as unethical and moral monsters, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the narrative that Reagan really wants to change. And that passage didn't make the final version of the speech, I think largely because they didn't want to directly antagonize Hollywood. Uh, but throughout you know, his first term, you know, Reagan is going out of his way often to talk about you know, just how great the people who are serving their country are and how you know, under his presidency, they no longer have to accept patriotism as a sole reward for their service, something that was too often given in too little amounts, uh, that you now have people who are of a higher quality uh, and both intelligence-wise and ethically that are joining the service. And so you see this reflected in culture as well. So Hunt for October in 84 captures these narratives perfectly. Uh, but then, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Rambo 2 is a relitigation of the Vietnam War, where we get to win this time, right, as, as Rambo asked. Um, and then, you know, given the Medal of Honor to the uh, prisoners of war who've been held there in secret, playing off that myth that there were pals left behind. Um, and Rocky IV, I mean, Stallone is another favorite of the White House. Uh, he's going to go to a number of state dinners. There's a, a great shot of him, his wife at the time, who was... Um, Drago's trainer in Rocky IV, you know, and the White House and their touches with, with Ron and Nancy. Yeah. Uh, and even like movies that weren't necessarily military in nature still captured some of this uh, kind of Reagan optimism about not just the military, but American society. So the John Hughes movies mm -hmm. are very mm -hmm. much like a really kind of low stake, low threats. American suburbia is nice, but, you know, there's some angst among the teens. 
uh, Back to the Future features the Libyan terrorists, right? right? They're the ones who are trying to gun down Doc Brown, yeah. uh, but they're, they're overcome. And so Reagan's worldview is really permeating Hollywood and fiction. Uh, and again, I think Clancy is a, a great aspect of, or a great example of that. Uh, and you, know, you mentioned The Born Identity. That was a book the administration hated um, and The Born Supremacy as well. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cap Weinberger, uh, who was Secretary of Defense, was previously a book reviewer for the San Francisco Chronicle when he was serving uh, as legislature in California. And so he writes a book review of The Hunt for October, uh, which calls it you know, an incredibly important book for anyone serious about national security issues. Part one about Patriot Games as well, praising how it depicts technology up to the limits of classification. Uh, and actually talks about terrorism in the world with the Libyans again being involved and the IRA. Uh, but he writes one of the Born Supremacy, which is the sequel to The Born Identity uh, by Ludlum. And he just tears it apart, hmm. uh, saying that it is an awful book. It has the required Le Carre syndrome of moral equivalency. Right. Uh, and it's showing government doing things we would never do. We would never assassinate people or do all these you know, unethical things. Uh, and it's a conscious part of the administration to set the tone for what kind of stories are good to tell. And they're going to praise authors who kind of toe the line, uh, either intentionally or unintentionally, and, and go out of the way to sort of punch down at ones who aren't necessarily meeting the preferred viewpoint. With your intelligence experience, um, you might agree with me that fr- from mine, I just find it amazing that you have the president of the United States and the defense secretary both praising fulsomely this this book that comes out that has a whole lot of what appear to be advanced military details in it. Um, you would imagine every intelligence service in the world is picking up this book, reading it, and trying to map it onto what United States defense policy is and read into it what it says about the president and the secretary of defense. And the funny thing is, most of the time you would advise intelligence officers, hey, don't read too much into a positive book review or into a presidential mention of a book, but your analysis, <laughs> the analysis you've done shows, yeah, if they did so, they probably were right, at least when it comes to Reagan. Yeah, I think that's that's spot on. And, you know, as the book gets popular uh, in 1985, there, you know, Time magazine kind of drops a line in there, you know, copies are being purchased by the Soviet embassy, presumably for shipment back to Moscow, right? And, and I, I mentioned, you know, John Lehman's reaction was who the hell cleared this. And there was right. a classification review of the novel before it came out. Um, Naval Institute gave it to two uh, Navy sub-captains. One said, yeah, no, this is all good. The other one was like, you cannot possibly publish this. It's full of secrets. Uh, and, you know, so Clancy then sat down with them, kind of walked them through. Oh, no, I found this in Jane's. I found right. this in this article. Yep. Uh, showing all the kind of open source that he was able to compile. Kind of like, like a modern-day Bellingcat kind of thing, I guess, where he had, you know, put together this is what all these specs are for, sure. for the sub and may not have been something that they wanted out there, but it was out there and therefore fair game though. In later books, Clancy definitely does get access to classified information. Yeah. Not early on, but later on. And you, we, we started with Red Storm Rising, his sequel, which uh, 86, 87 was just a monster hit. And uh, I got to say, I was not aware or I had forgotten a story that you mentioned that on the way to Reykjavik, Iceland, on board Air Force One to meet with the Soviet leader, Gorbachev, uh, Reagan was talking with his staff and saying, yeah, you know, I, I haven't read all the briefing books that you've prepared, which is Reagan's style to 
not necessarily focus on the things they wanted to talk about, but read the stuff they really pushed him to. But then he said, but I have done some preparation. Um, and he called his research for the upcoming talks, Red Storm Rising, which is fascinating given the story of the book. It, it is a story about the a third world war that occurs in, in Europe. Talk a little bit about the crucial influence. People may have heard of the link between the hunt for Red October and Reagan, but many people haven't about Red Storm Rising. So tell just a little bit about that connection and uh, both what it reveals about Reagan, but how, again, Reagan used it to inform or to reinforce his worldview. So when Clancy met Reagan in the White House in March of 85, the, the kind of last little exchange they have is Reagan asking him what he's working on. Uh, Clancy saying it's a book about World War Three, and Reagan asking who wins, to which Clancy says the good guys. Uh, and so the book is something he's working on with Larry Bond, a uh, former naval officer, uh, designer of the war game Harpoon, uh, and at the time employed by the Center for Naval Analysis. And so they've been doing some war games looking at how you resupply Europe in the events of World War Three, And they kind of latch onto that as the seed of what becomes Red Storm Rising. Uh, and so, as you mentioned, Red Storm Rising depicts a fictional Third World War between NATO and Warsaw Pact, uh, and NATO wins this war. So Reagan reads the book uh, almost as soon as it comes out in August '86, because uh, a little more than a month later, as you know, he's on the plane with Ken Edelman, uh, you know, George Schultz in the back there talking about it and saying, hey, it's in Iceland. We're going to Iceland. Therefore, research. Uh, everyone laughs and thinks he's joking. Uh, and he wasn't. He was very serious about being at his research. <laughs> Uh, so at that conference, you know, famously, Gorbachev and he almost agreed to eliminate all nuclear weapons within 10 years. Uh, the only thing that holds it up is that Reagan will not commit to confining SDI to the laboratory over that window. And so it falls apart uh, a little bit acrimoniously, uh, despite, again, having come close to a real historic um, abolition of nuclear weapons, basically. Uh, Reagan flies back to D.C. and Thatcher calls him up because she is very concerned. Um, you know, it, Reagan has almost given away the game in her viewpoint because the, the key question of you know, security in Europe was that the Warsaw Pact had massive conventional forces, uh, certainly more numbers-wise than NATO did, which meant that NATO needed its nukes in order to achieve the effects of airland battle um, and win World War III. So Thatcher's worried that Reagan is not committed to NATO, uh, that he is willing to throw Europe under the bus, basically, and upset the balance of power. Can't really tell him that as directly, right? She calls him very nicely and is like, hey, great job, except for this piece here. Uh, and Reagan says, well, you know, I don't see it the same way. You should read Red Storm Rising. Uh, it gives a very good picture of where we're at. So the president of the United States is is countering a very upset prime minister of the United Kingdom, not, not with, you know, advanced policy papers or extensive logic and argumentation, but with, here's this great novel, you should read it. Yep, exactly. Thatcher's a little bit taken aback by this, doesn't really know how to respond to it. Uh, and so kind of unpacking why, you know, Reagan identified with it, latched onto it so strongly. Uh, so again, I, I mentioned that it was a Third World War book. It was not the first book of that conflict that Reagan read. You'd mentioned General Sir John Hackett's Third World War at the start of right. the podcast here, and Reagan read that one too. Um, he didn't like it as much. Again, it was put on one of the noble things he'd read in 83. Uh, but that exchange of Birmingham for Minsk mm. that you mentioned uh, sat very poorly with him. Right. Uh, in Clancy's telling, the U.S. and NATO win without resorting to nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, the New York Times book review of the book calls it good news for Mr. Weinberger. 
Uh, and that's because every single piece of technology developed in the late 70s and 80s works perfectly. The M1 tank is awesome. Stealth fighters are getting behind enemy lines. These command and control birds are doing their job of getting the right resource at the right place at the right time. So commanders have like perfect situational understanding, know what the Soviets look like, and after initial setbacks are able to hold the line. And even before U.S. forces come back in to the continent, start to push back on that line. Yeah. Uh, and so it is a narrative of basically everything that the Reagan administration has done since 1981 is correct. It works perfectly. Um, and you don't need nukes anymore. And it sure sounds like a parallel to what you brought up earlier, which is the that John Carter subgenre of you have the right people, right? The 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 American and Allied Service uh, people, and you have the best technology, and you combine that, and of course, Clancy writes, "We win." It all works for Reagan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the right people with the right weapons, just like you say. And yeah, it's not that this is divorced from reality. You know, if you look at the the policy documents, you look at the things coming from the Joint Chiefs, from the Pentagon, from the NSC, they all paint a compelling narrative that the U.S. is much stronger conventionally in 1986 than they were in 1981. NATO's assessments of where they stand in comparison to the Warsaw Pact are also trending in that direction. And so part of it, I don't think that Reagan believed that in 1986, NATO would beat Warsaw conventionally necessarily. But he also knew that war wasn't likely in 1986 uh, and believed that in that 10 year window, uh, perhaps then that would be possible, which meant that nukes no longer guaranteed Western Europe security. They were a dangerous and apocalyptic force uh, that he'd long despised and it was time for them to go. Uh, and in some ways, you could argue that viewpoint was somewhat correct as you look at Desert Storm uh, and you look at how the latest NATO or US equipment just rolls through uh, the Soviet and Warsaw Pact equivalent. Absolutely. I can't talk about this period, the, the mid-80s, without bringing up a counterpoint, which is something that my colleague Shane talked to Nicholas Meyer about not too long ago on the podcast, which is the day after, which had an immense impact on American public opinion, uh, given its wide viewership. Um, basically, this is the the, the TV program you know, depicting life in a town, I think, in Kansas, following a nuclear exchange. Um, we know Reagan saw it. We know that he was uh, greatly depressed by it. I think he noted in his diary or in some other private writings. Some people go that extra step to say, well, that must have been what turned Reagan from a heartless cold warrior who wanted to bury the Soviet Union to somebody who suddenly was willing to try to get rid of all nuclear weapons. Um, it's not that simple, is it? No, it's definitely not. Um, you know, a lot of it focuses on this idea of 1983 being a pivotal year where there is some kind of change in Reagan coming out of the day after the nuclear scare with Abel Archer. Uh, and I don't really think the record supports that particularly well. You know, everyone or not everyone, a lot of people reference that diary and she know that, you know, the movie left him greatly disturbed and effective. Uh, but then the next lines are like, which means that we must never let this happen. And to do that, we have to keep doing exactly what we're doing right now, uh, which is the buildup, which is the force. You know, the, the Anna and Yvonne speech, uh, this great speech where he imagines a U.S. and a Soviet couple meeting in a shelter, able to magically speak the same language where they wouldn't talk about politics. They talk about their kids, their hobbies, their jobs. It's very conciliatory towards the Soviets. 
But then the next line is, you know, if the Soviets want peace, there'll be peace, which again puts the onus for the conflict back on yeah. the Soviet Union. And so for Reagan, nukes were a necessary evil um, because of that conventional balance that I had mentioned, where coming into his presidency, there was a clear disparity, uh, at least on paper, between the Warsaw Pact and NATO. And I mean, on paper may not have been worth much, uh, as we've seen in other cases recently, but that was certainly the, the thinking uh, at the time. But his nuclear abhorrence goes back to the first nukes. Um, so after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, he was going to speak in that nuclear rally and recite a poem, um, set your clocks to U-235, uh, until the studio says, well, if you want to be an actor, you will not do this. And Reagan wanted to be an actor. Mm. Um, and wow. so wow. we're looking at movies that influence Reagan's views there, though. Um, I don't think it's the day after. I think it is the sci-fi classic, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, so you're going you're going back about 30 years earlier, which makes sense for a formative experience. But obviously, it's been remade in different guises since. But refresh us on The Day the Earth Stood Still and, and why its theme really hit Reagan so well. Yeah, so The Day the Earth Stood Still uh, has a UFO landing in Washington, D.C. Uh, and an alien comes out along with his kind of robot protector. Uh, and he has an ultimatum. That basically, hey, this atomic stuff, you all are playing with is really dangerous. You need to stop making war uh, and become peaceful. If you become peaceful, then you can join this great intergalactic society. Uh, if you insist on making war, we're going to quarantine you so that you can all destroy yourselves without affecting anything else. And the response is that the alien is killed. Um, and only the woman that had come to love him is able to kind of escape on the UFO. But the rest of Earth is doomed because of the nuclear weapons um, that they refuse to give up and let go. Uh, and this sort of cemented in Reagan's mind the cost um, that this kind of conflict would have is that it would mean the destruction of everything. And it kind of ties to his ideas that you can't possibly be free if you are living under the threat of annihilation. Uh, his favorite metaphor about mad being it's two cowboys pointing their pistols at each heads in the bar or saloon at each other for forever. Uh, and there has to be a way to get past this. Uh, mm -hmm. And so... Mm -hmm. Even though, again, you know, day after was a movie he was concerned about, he was more concerned with mitigating the impact it had on the American public, uh, which is why they had George Schultz appear on ABC right afterwards in this town hall forum to talk about what it would really look like and why. Uh, yeah, sure, nuclear zero is great, but we need these conditions first, um, which people took as disingenuous, perhaps, that he was just trying to, to sell them on something he didn't believe in. But uh, I do think it was something that Reagan genuinely believed, is that, no, I agree, get rid of the nukes, but we can't do it. Uh, if we have this evil empire that can then threaten our freedom uh, without it. Let's take this up a level, kind of pull all these themes together. So when it comes to national security and, and probably other areas as well, vision is crucial to strategy, right? You, you have to have a vision. You have to be able to communicate the vision, sell people on the vision, and find a way of linking together various policies. Um there, there's a plus side and a downside to articulating a vision really well, having a consistent vision absent other things. Um, let's do that in the case of Reagan and these themes we've talked about informed by everyone from Edgar Rice Burroughs to Tom Clancy. What's the plus side of how he had a unifying theme to his thinking that sometimes was the limit of his thinking on particular questions? And then what's the downside, particularly as it applied to areas that were not the Cold War struggle with the Soviet Union, but regarding the billions of other people in the world? So I think uh, on the plus side, what you're looking at with the use of fiction the way he did uh, is 
it creates a, a narrative that makes things more personal and more relatable, more real for the people who are consuming it. Right? So Red Storm Rising was realistic enough. It didn't need to be perfectly accurate, but it let Reagan imagine that he was, you know, the Air Force weather guy running around Reykjavik trying to, you know, get them back onto the island working with British stop, that he was the tanker and the fold of gap and kind of understanding ways this could work in a way that again was realistic enough. And it let him communicate these ideas in a way that people may actually read, uh, that was digestible, uh, and then led to some policy agreement, although again, Reagan's view on nuclear zero was very um, controversial even among his own supporters at the time. Uh, but that's a way to build consensus and, and sure, common purpose. Sure. The downside, and this is very clear in his policy towards uh, Central America in particular, uh, is if you aren't reading the right kinds of materials, if you aren't pairing it with this kind of broad understanding of, of a region, of a people, of an environment, you're going to draw bad conclusions and create bad policy and enable bad actors. Uh, so Reagan wanted a high noon policy for uh, dealing with the Sandinistas, uh, Wigan, which is a, we go in, we do the right thing. We don't care what people say. We're going to do this because it's right. Um, not recognizing that the Contras weren't white hats. Uh, you know, that in his view, there's, you know, you're with us, a white hat, you're against us, you're a black hat in this cowboy framework. The Contras were not good people. Neither were the Sandinistas, right? But uh, you can't have that simplistic of a worldview uh, in what's a really complicated thing where a place where the Cold War is probably not the main driving force that's there. It's about these local realities uh, where the victim is the people of Nicaragua, it is the people of Central America who are experiencing this. Uh, but the lack of nuance to his approach is devastating. Um, and yeah. people especially listening to him knowing that, no, he's not a detailed guy, but I got my marching orders. I got the intent from the boss, mm -hmm. right? Boss mm -hmm. said, do the right thing for the right reasons. We don't care. Uh, I'm going to then, you know, take this slush fund I have from selling weapons to Iran mm -hmm. uh, in order to fund this bad group, right? And that's where you get the Iran-Contra scandal, which almost brings down his presidency. Um, right. And it's because he had a vision. It was a clear vision, uh, but not a well-defined one and not one that was based on a accurate reading of the situation that was taking place there. I'm going to go in an unfair direction here, so just to warn you, because you, you haven't done a comparative study across all presidencies, but what you describe here of a, a person who decides to go into politics, who has some worldview formed by early readings and experiences combined with personal, combined with his personal life, um, ends up being informed by that vision and tries to find ways of communicating that vision through politics and policy. That's probably true of all presidents to one degree or another. Reagan's, and, and partly it's just due to your research and, and your gift at storytelling, that Reagan's is so clear, right? You put it together and you can trace some very explicit through lines here from some of his formative readings to his policies and his communication style. Do you think that is unique to, not maybe not unique, but do you think it is more pronounced in Ronald Reagan, and that's why we're able to make those connections? Or do you think that perhaps others have it, but we just haven't told those stories yet about as many presidents as Reagan? So I think it's easier to trace in the case of Reagan because of his role as a storyteller, because of how clear, I mean, how clearly important telling these stories was to him. 
Um, but I, I think it's certainly going to be true of a number of other presidents as you dig into things, right? JFK was a big fan of Ian Fleming's James Bond novels. And it's difficult to say to what degree did that influence his, at least want us to think about special operations, right? And I mean, there are some wacky ideas being thrown around about how to deal with Castro in Cuba, even after the Bay of Pigs fails spectacularly. Um, you know, George Marshall uh, is a big fan of like detective novels and Pulp Fiction um, as he is, you know, going around basically all of America before he becomes the chief of staff in the army, right? And it's, he's not clear in his documents about where some of those ideas uh, and trade-offs may have impacted his view on alliances and working on knowing who your friends and your allies were about having a black book to pull out and call to have the right person for the right job. But yeah, yeah. those are features of those books in many ways. Um, and I, I have to be careful when I do this too, because it can be too declarative. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it can mm-hmm. be like, this person is this because they read this is, is right. too simplistic. It's, it's really complicated because people are, an amalgamation of lots of things. But I mean, I can look back at my life and certainly I have been shaped in some ways by reading Tom Clancy. I have been shaped because I spent a lot of time thinking about Star Trek, probably more time than I should. Um, right. And it's, but it's hard to say exactly how that manifests. Uh, what's great about Reagan is it becomes a lot clearer because of the way, because of his own past as a storyteller. Just thinking by the seat of my pants here, it seems there's also some truth to the flip side, which is uh, our most recent former president famously did not like to read at all. And it wasn't just a matter of, I don't want to read, you know, long, thick technical documents, um, but he loves to read novels. No, it was just, you know, just not someone who was informed as much by reading. Um, is it any surprise then that there was not a coherent, consistent vision, but instead a lot of his policies were much more immediate and transactional based? There, there could be a parallel there. Um, that in fact, Reagan being at one end of the spectrum, um, that others could be at the other end and it does inform something about what their style will be like as commander in chief. I think there can be something to that. And it goes back to this idea of, of the vision thing and imagination. Um, you know, and this is where it, even in Reagan's case, I think that he reads too narrowly uh, and it restricts his imagination in ways that aren't, aren't great. Uh, Cause yeah. what the power of a story is the power of the narrative is, is again, the opportunity to make something relatable and real, to put you into the action. Uh, Again, that's what a good story, a good movie, good whatever does, is it forces you to think about things from the perspectives of its characters. Uh, And that can be an enlightening uh, process. That's a great way to gain some empathy and understanding of things that can be strange and foreign. It can also be a dangerous and reinforcing thing if you're giving into, you know, either things that are maliciously untruthful, that are actively propagandist, that are mm. um, hate-filled screeds, for example, then that's going to reinforce that and build up these worst characteristics. Uh, but the power of that imagination, and that's, I talked about it a little bit in the conclusion, is I think one of the failings of the H.W. Bush administration, where he says he lacks the whole vision thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, not realizing how damning of a critique that is, is that you need leaders to provide a vision for where we are heading. Otherwise, it is going to be either a transactional thing of, well, I need this right now. What can you do for me? Or just constant react to contact of, okay, this here, how are we going to handle this without the consistency that you need to have a coherence uh, and effective grant strategy? Well, I'll say there are many, many more vivid examples and entertaining vignettes uh, in your book, Reagan's War Stories, that I will recommend it heartily to anyone who's interested either in Ronald Reagan 
or in how issues of narrative and storytelling inform policymaking, or are just fans of pop culture, especially in the 1980s, and, and want to explore some of the deeper themes there and how they resonate with people. But instead of telling all those stories, I'll refer people to the book and instead reach into our chatterbox for a random question. Ben, recommend any recent book you've read, podcast you've listened to, or TV show you've watched. Okay. Um, so for book, we'll go with a, a nonfiction one first. Uh, I just finished my my friend uh, Susie Colburn's Zero Missiles. Uh, it is a great look at the NATO double track decision of you know, how are you going to handle the Soviets' uh, increase in their SS-20s versus the need to upgrade kind of the NATO capacity over there. But what I think it does a really good job of is it looks at the perspective of Western European countries. Because a lot of times, again, I think the Cold War, we get tied to this. It's the U.S., it's the Soviets, and the other nations get lost in the way. And she also does a wonderful job of kind of talking about different levels, looking at it from a high policy level, but then looking at these activists who are part of the nuclear zero kind of net zero um, movement that's going on with this. Uh, thinking about a work of fiction that I've just read that I really liked. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, N.K. Jemison's The City We Became yeah. uh, is a sci-fi book that I really very much enjoyed. It's one that I haven't seen something like it before. And that's kind of weird to say in sci-fi because you have these really well-established tropes. Um, yeah, but she crosses them. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's basically what happens if a city becomes alive and it's New York City and it's got you know, avatars for the boroughs. And it's just a fascinating look at New York City itself, uh, but then some other really broad and important concepts. Sequel just came out uh, mm -hmm. this past week. Mm -hmm. And so I've got that and haven't read it yet. And we'll give anything away. Yeah. <laughs> we don't do spoilers <laughs> on this show except for TV shows or movies that are decades old. That That is totally fair. And I gave lots of those out today. Right. Um, and then TV show, I guess, uh, stick with my Star Trek, you know, Strange New Worlds. Yeah. Uh, that was just fantastic. I loved everything about it. Um, well, DS9 is my favorite Star Trek. Oh. Uh, I love the heavy serialized storytelling there. I did like the return to a more episodic Star Trek where the stakes mm -hmm. weren't existential every episode. Mm -hmm. And the cast is incredible in it, too, and does a great job with well, Those with are topics I do look forward to chatting with you about in the future. But when it comes to... Reagan's War Stories. I appreciate the time you've spent with us today. Thanks for coming on Chatter. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.